Every single day that I wake up, I'm focused on creating my body, creating my mind, and living my highest and best. My morning routine is very much focused around first centering myself and then going through this process that I've created for me that allows me to start identifying who I am when I show up at my best. And I literally envision myself stepping into that person, stepping into that energy, stepping into that leadership, stepping into that clarity. Those are all words that come up for me every single morning. I want to be centered. I want to be calm, but strong. I want to be a leader. I want to be clear in my decision-making and clear in my ability to deliver a message to you. So thank you all for being here and stepping into your greatness. This is the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pakulski. Another part of my morning routine that usually follows my meditation and my, my visualization is my morning coffee routine, followed by a lot of journaling, a lot of reading. Uh, a longtime sponsor of this podcast, I'm going to give a shout out to Bubs Naturals, is always 100% of the time a big part of my morning routine. I put three, sometimes four ingredients in my morning coffee, and I suggest you all try this because it is definitely upgrading your body, definitely upgrading your mind. So I start with about 10 grams of powdered MCT from Bubs. I do about 10 grams of collagen. I'll do about five grams of lion's mane, which I get from our other friends at Real Mushrooms. And sometimes I'll put in a little bit of alpha-GPC. Alpha and I like alpha-GPC as a choline source. It's also got a bit of a sweetness to it, which is absolutely phenomenal. This is what I call my intelligence coffee. And today's podcast is brought to you by Bubs Naturals, bubsnaturals.com. You can use the code Ben to get hooked up with 20% off. Don't miss it. Do it. Now, on that note, today's podcast is with my amazing friend, Derek Woodski. Derek is an absolute brilliant human being. His mind is a gift to the human race and is pushing things forward in his own way. For a long time, I would say he was one of the top authorities in the strength space and in the, in the, in the high-level performance space. Derek is it was a thrower in college and caught and taught and coached in the NFL, a very high-level strength coach. So when it comes to understanding application, he's just someone who gets results. So if you're interested in understanding strength, if you're interested in understanding how to approach your life from a perspective of living in your strength, this conversation with Derek is going to be absolutely mind-blowing. Don't miss a minute. Listen right to the end as we always offer incredible value. Enjoy my podcast with Derek Woodski. I know you're someone who craves intellectual stimulation and uh, you're always looking for ways to improve yourself, improve your knowledge base, your skill set. On top of the vast amount of information you've gathered over the last 25 years, what area of interest is piquing your curiosity most right now? You know, in terms of my own like personal interests, for me, I think it has a little bit that's kind of transitioned out of the nuts and bolts. Like I've always been a nuts and bolts guy and maybe I still am, but I'm realizing, you know, some of it's based on my education background, but there is a lack of consistency to the nuts and bolts of the psychological manifestation of success, as well as the psychological programming necessary to be physically successful. And it's an area that I've taken a lot more interest in over the last couple of years. And even when I speak events like Summer Strong or Power Athlete, that typically is where we end up going with it. The reason being is I'm finding that the beauty of a digital age and the ability to do this, what we're doing right now, you know, 2000 miles apart is also, it gives us too much information constantly. 
And it's not a bad thing if you can decipher it or if you can kind of turn down the nozzle on the fire hose a little bit of how much information you're getting in. Because we started to see it 10 years ago where we were getting coaches that would attend, you know, 15 lectures in a year, which typically were a week long. So let's subtract that 15 weeks right away from the actual application of knowledge, right? The actual implementation of something, you know, you need the knowledge. It's great. But at the same point, you have to practice, right? Like, you know, there's never been a, a samurai that just meditated on the slice of a sword, right? Eventually you have to actually do the thing. And so what I started to find is even 10 years ago, and now it's at an accelerated rate, that the ability to actually, I think of it's a couple things. The ability to plan how you're going to achieve a thing is very convoluted for people now. They don't really understand it because everything's so segmented and broken down, they don't realize that there can be all these like undulations to their day, but there can still be one constant that carries for three, four or five years. You know, so what happens is they get so distracted by the undulation of the day that they lose track of the fact that they were supposed to do that one thing every day for 10 years, right? And they don't even know how because it's so overwhelming. Like the the idea or the metaphor of how to eat an elephant, you know, one bite at a time is completely lost now because the one bite has become so important to everybody, right? They're like the idea that each individual Instagram post or each individual day is one into itself. And they lose track that you have to string that together to be successful. You can't just have a bunch of disconnected great instances and think that's going to create one mega success. There has to be an underlying platform to that. And so that's become a lot more important to me, maybe because I don't coach like in the NCAAs anymore, where I used to control that consistent one year long variable with the athletes, and then you get the undulation. So now I'm seeing, okay, if I can't actually physically control that for a half dozen athletes on the daily, how do I get that information to people? Because I can see that they're not controlling it themselves massive inconsistency in people. And I called this a couple of years ago, and now we're starting to see it. We're seeing some of the Instagram stars significantly injured, right? Because they were blasting out max efforts like every Wednesday for the gram. And now here we are three, four years later, and these same athletes are like, oh, where'd that person go? Oh, he's, he's in rehab. He's rehabbing a shoulder. He's, she's rehabbing a back. And it's like, oh, yeah, that, that's kind of how it goes, right? Like we're not we're not robots, right? So there has to be a re-education in the goal setting systems that are necessary for long-term success. And there has to be a re-education of the psychology of people to understand that no matter how chaotic things seem right now, pandemic, riots, political unrest, you know, let you go down a ladder of, of chaos right now. Those things will all undulate. They're not going to last forever. They never have. Ask anyone, you know, I can speak from personal experience. I've been, you know, attacked by rockets in my life coming from the sky, right? The moment that you experience something like that, you realize that those are horrific moments, but they can't deter that long, steady consistency, which should be you at your fundamental level. And so that's become something I put a lot more energy in. And even for myself, right? Like, how do you stay centered? when you're isolated in the mountains during a pandemic.
are force fires, you know? So that, 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 that's become big for me. We're on the same page, man. That's a really, really ironic. This is exactly where mine's going. My mind is going as well. So let me ask you, do you, do you take on an approach of trying to minimize the undulations or just make sure you're consistently sticking with your, your first principles? I think initially, I think the priority is first principle. And we've talked about this a lot in the past, you and I, and we've talked about the isolation of athletics because you have a tendency to become very self-driven, right? The I, the, the id. And a lot of people try to move away from that. And they try to move away from that because they think that they have to, when they move to id, ego, or superego, that they, they get to this place in their understanding that they have to become more self-aware for the sake that they need to fit into society. They need to be able to hold relationships. They need to be able to interact. All that is extremely important. Because that's inevitably where we're all moving to, the ability to become a part of a social existence where you're a, a significant contributor to that. And selfish people don't have a tendency to fit into that very well. However, there has to still be some, some drive towards the id of everyone. The idea that you have to be you first before you can be anything else. And we have a tendency... You know, when we've been athletes like like we had in the past where we were so self-driven and so isolating because we needed to be to, to harness uh, focus that we want to break away from that. And we want to get into this mindset where we need to be more for others. We need to focus on, you know, all these different variables to be a part of it. But at the end of the day, the thing that I keep coming back to is long-term success, especially with goal setting, or even the ability to be better so that you can provide more, even if it's if it's that mentality that is driving someone, you have to have some fundamental, you know, id ego stuff that's still going on. You have to put yourself first before you can really get through it. And I think the pandemic needs to, to make people aware of that a little bit, that kind of lost that. It's like, you know, a lot of people that can't find the motivation to exercise in their home, even though they've been locked up, you know, in the UK for three months. Well, yeah, you, you got to kind of make yourself priority one because you're not affecting anyone or anyone else at that moment. So you have to kind of look in the mirror and be like, oh, I want to be the best at this. I want to master that. When I come out of this, I want to be the hero of a story, even if you know, the hero is an anti-hero where it's like, look what I did. Well, you didn't. But sometimes you have to be that way to get through a thing. And it's very self-driven. And to be honest, there is a lot of positive that comes out of the person that kind of, you know, has the rebellious punk rock middle finger to everybody. It's like, fuck you all. I'm going to get this done right now. I don't care if you guys eat 10 bags of Cheetos, gain 150 pounds. I'm going to come out of working out in my bedroom, looking like somebody that's been training as a Greek gladiator, right? Like that's very ego driven, but it's amazing sometimes when you see that, how much that affects the other people that are like, Ooh, wow, you know what? That, that's an example. That person is an example of what I could have achieved. And it's funny how the ego, in my opinion, in goal setting they, they keep suppressing it, right? But 
there's never been an Olympic champion that wasn't driven by ego. There's never been a neurosurgeon that saves a thousand lives that wasn't driven on some level by the ego of being recognized as the greatest neurosurgeon in the world. Participation trophies have a tendency to be the opposition of gold medal ego. And in a world where participation trophies become the standard, excellence doesn't. And excellence has a tendency to be directly tied to the ego. And if you can master that and then understand that ego is self-drive and then your ability to be open and exploratory and accepting of the world around you outside of that, that's the harmonious balance. But I think a lot of people have misplaced the importance of self-preservation so that you can be a societal provider, you know, if that makes sense. Of course. So how do you personally prioritize your highest values or your first principles within your life? And if you wouldn't mind sharing what those are, the things that keep you anchored and rooted and moving in the direction of, you know, great line. For me, it's always been difficult to be honest, because I have, I would consider myself to have a psychologically unhealthy expectation of self. I work on it. I'm not good at it. Right. So I have a tendency, you know, even at 44 to hold myself to standards that are are, are not acceptable. Right. Like, and I'm aware and, and I'm getting better, but for me, I have to start looking at things, not so much as I'll give you a perfect example of how this can be difficult for me. So when I started doing high altitude hiking with Megan, who that's her comfort zone, big aerobic base, very good in the mountain. She's well-trained, well-educated, you know? So for me, if it's a seven mile hike, you know, above 10,000 feet, I, my brain is literally counting steps. Like that's how I am. Not only am I counting steps, I'm kind of always aware of how quickly I want those steps to occur, right? Meanwhile, she's completely at ease, relaxed, looking around, appreciating the magnificence of the mountains, everything that goes with that. With me, I'm just like, we got to go seven miles, got to go seven miles, right? So I have a tendency based on bad programming from sport, and it's not so much an ego thing, it's just bad programming from sport, is get to the destination, feel the satisfaction of the destination get back home, then look back on it and be like, okay, that was cool, right? And so for me during this this period of trying to maintain growth and prioritization of myself, I've actually had to let go of some of those old fundamentals that are like almost numerical fundamentals, A plus B equals C equals success, and get back to putting in time on a thing or endeavor because Putting time into something, even if it's self-fulfilling, is still growth time as opposed to not putting any energy into anything because you feel like you're not going to have a predictable outcome. You know, so for me, just learning how to walk peacefully, right, in an environment that it's not so much about the destination and how it was achieved. It was about finding peace in the process of walking. Right. So it's not necessarily changing the the standard. Like you kind of alluded to the fact you want to change. I don't think it's changing the standard. It's just changing the, the perception of the process. Perception. Yeah. perception is, yeah, like, you know, 
why would I wear a heart rate monitor going for a hike? There, right. You know what I mean? But I did it for a year because I like to look at these weird metrics when I got back and I'm like, okay, that kind of defeated the purpose. Like I, I was, I was aware of my internal heartbeat for seven hours. I was so OCD during my competitive years that I literally went the complete opposite direction for the last five. And I was like, I don't sure. want anything, including diet, including training. Like I don't measure anything. And now I'm kind of trying to find a balance. I had this conversation with Megan uh, a couple of days ago because she's like, why don't you just write a program for yourself? Right. She's probably said it twice in the last year. And it's funny because I haven't written a workout down on paper in like six years right. at least. That and I feel bad. Because, yeah. Cause it's like, you know, I feel bad cause I, I talk about programming and, and periodization. I, cause it's super important for 99% of people that train, but it's like, well, if I write it down on paper, it takes me back to a, a mental place that I, I, I'm trying to stay away from a little bit. And I have a tendency, like it happened to me this month. I decided that I was going to back squat the very first, I think it was like maybe a four week period. Week one, I could barely squat 225. It wasn't because it was heavy. I was just old and broken. Right. So it's like everything ached. Week four, I squat 500 pounds and it's like, okay, why did I use that four weeks to do this? What was the, there was no real benefit. Like now it's, I've done this weight every year for so many years. I didn't make me any better, but in that four week period where I got into that psychological state where Monday was going to be squat day, it put me into a position where I stopped focusing on the walk again. And sure enough, at the end of the four weeks, I'm like, oh, that doesn't feel right. Oh, that's stiff. It's like, oh yeah, I had 500 pounds on my back for the 25th year for no reason. Right. So it's like, okay, get back into the mindset of focusing on self, focusing on the experience of the self, and then from there, trying to get better at something. Like, I see the value though. Like I see the value in doing that stuff. Even if it's just like, I don't want to do it. It sucks. And it's uncomfortable. So therefore I'm going to do it. And I'm sure we'll have similar opinions on this stuff. And, and then also, you know, the, the, the follow-up question to that is, you know, you're obviously still doing things in your life that are really hard. And, and yeah. so how do you kind of toe that, that line? You know, that's actually a good question. Like this summer is a perfect example. Yeah. As usual, someone asked me if I want to go water skiing. Right. And I, as a kid, you know, I was highly competitive as a, as a slalom skier and, but I just stopped doing it because I did other sports for so long. It's just one of those things. So these buddies of ours, they get a boat. They're like, Hey, you want to go skiing? I'm like, sure. Go skiing once. Right. You know, struggle to get up the whole nine yards. It was like, I was learning how to walk again. And, uh, you know, like three weeks later, I got my own ski wetsuit, bought gloves, like completely dive in. Right. So now I'm a water skier and, uh, you know, separated my shoulder, like, <laughs> you know, Sorry, like, yeah. yeah, like just stupid shit, you know, you know, like, yes, you know, two days ago I was skiing, I'll, I'll ski again today, winter skiing, you know, so I'm still doing that stuff and still getting into the high alpine and stressing myself that way. And I, and I still think it's highly important to do. Like, I, I think that there, there's something about that that happens psychologically that, for one, it's fulfilling. Secondly, the, the struggle and the hardness of a thing, regardless of what it is, you know, for some it's intellectual, you know, purely, you know, maybe they're not physical people, but they're constantly doing things that cause them that same struggle, sense of stress. 
and, and growth or maybe just fulfillment that comes after the completion, excuse me. And so when I look at that type of stuff, I, I don't think I'll ever be able to let it go. Like, I, I think there's something extremely spiritual, regardless of religion, about the struggle or physical reminder of life, right? Like, and, you know, we've had a strange year and this kind of be a little bit of a, an offshoot to this, but in the strength and conditioning world, it's been a weird pandemic. We've lost a lot of young coaches. We've had some suicides. We've had some unexpected deaths. We've had some some very strange things happen. People that were fairly close to me, some that I knew peripherally, but there, it's, there's been some tragedy with what's happened. And I think what, you know, and I, I've been trying to unpack it with some of these people, and you can't always understand what's going on psychologically with people. But I, I think some people, they get the disconnect from the challenge or the physical effort and the actual like almost like spiritual or connection to something greater that happens through the process of challenge and success. And, and, and it was really strange because a couple of these guys that have passed were extremely successful, you know, and to my knowledge, no history of head traumas or CTEs that could be an external influence that affects these things and mood disorders. But it's like everything became so physical and so in the moment that you start to wonder if they had kind of disconnected from the like actual beauty that there is in living a physically challenging existence. You know, I think that when, you know, and it goes back to some of this conversation we've had about these micro undulations on the day where that becomes the focus, you know, where everything becomes feedback driven. And, it, and, you know, with the internet, it's emotional feedback driven. It's not metrics like, you know, you achieve this, so you get this back type thing. It's purely emotional. The metric of I do this workout, I look this way, I get this many likes. That's a very dopamine emotional driven, you know, so, but it becomes a very disconnected existence because when you shut your phone off or you turn your computer off, you go back to being like, I got to wait until I have that next physical moment, right? And it makes me wonder if there needs to be a readaptation for people back to the human experience. And the human experience is it's ancestral. It's it's being around tribes of people with a like-minded mentality. Don't isolate. People, humans aren't isolative in nature. You know, when we look at the early Native American culture in the Plains Indians um, and First Nations in Canada, you know, when someone broke the rules of their culture, either crime or punishment, they punished them by making them ride or walk alone away from the tribe, right? That is how we have instinctually known to punish people. We lock them in cages. We isolate them from society, right? And so I think during this time, this pandemic going on, we've, we get this false sense that these people are super successful and doing these great things because we see this physical momentary manifestation, but then they go back to isolation. And so I think for me, one of the things too that I've looked at over the past six months is you have to reconnect with a tribe of some form. I don't care what that tribe is as long as it's your tribe, right? Like I can't tell someone what to think, but I certainly hope that they're reconnecting on some level right? Because there is, there's something that should go with the physical stress. Like 
when you're up in the mountains hiking with a group of people and you all go through it together, there is something that occurs that's different than having done that hike alone. Mm -hmm. And it's like the shared experience. It's, you know, you, you talk to veterans that come home and they, and they long for the bond of war, right? Because the shared experience of the struggle. So I think that's another thing over the course of the past year that I've started to look more um, deeply into is also how do you how do you create the environment that you know a group training session at a gym does for some people? How do you create that environment psychologically in an ever segmenting world digitally? Right, because it, it, for a lot of people it's, I think it's becoming difficult. I, I think regardless of their successes, life is getting more difficult to live. Right. I think one of the worst things that's happening, at least from my perspective, is the, almost the, the murkiness of the future, the ambiguity that exists in the future. It's almost impossible to create definitive plans. And when you don't have a clear view of your future, it's very hard to work toward it. You're like, okay, should I even bother? What can I do? I don't know if this thing is going to succeed. I don't know what the world's going to look like in three weeks, three months, or three years. Right. And they're taking away that ability to drive forward, right? They're literally yes. castrating you because you're like, well, I'm not sure what I can do. So I can't plan for the future. I have to only live for today. I'm going to stay by myself and then stew in my own thoughts of like, what the hell should I be doing with myself? And that's one of the worst things that I think has come of this entire COVID situation is like, I have no idea what I can or can't do. And like, we're not really sure when it's going to open up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You hit the nail right on the head. You know, like what people don't realize here in where I live in California, they just rolled us back to what's called status red. Status purple is complete lockdown. Status purple is what we were in March, right? Where the only thing that was open was a grocery store and the gas station, right? Which brings up another random bullshit about the whole thing that no one questions the mental health of gas station workers or grocery store people that have literally this in our town have been dealing with nothing but shitheads for and they show up every day and go to work for minimum wage like mm -hmm. what's like we're so disconnected california is a unique you know nut anyway but you know we how do you so you know, one of our good friends path this year, Terrence Mitchell from South Africa, he was a difficult one for us to wrap our head around. No one's really sure what happened in terms of of the sequence of events, but he was by himself when it happened, right? And that's that's kind of what we understand. And Terrence was kind of on the on a on a wave up in terms of like for people that have kind of been around a long time of breaking through. He like we could all see it. He was on the verge of having a massive impact on a huge number of people. He was already having a big impact, right? He was influencing a lot of people to change their lives and do better. But you could see that he it's almost like the way I saw it is you could see that there was a wave cresting behind him that was going to take him over the edge, but he couldn't see it because it was behind him. And I fear that. You know, Terrence, like a, a lot of people, have been just grinding and grinding and grinding over this past couple of years, even before the pandemic. And normally, you start to get paid for that psychologically, maybe even monetarily, socially. All that payment starts to occur because you start traveling and finally, you know, 
getting amongst your people and having those conversations and they, and they can appreciate you and you can appreciate them. And your value as a human being starts to be rewarded in the interactions, regardless of what comes with it tangibly money-wise. Just the fact that people are showing up to see you or hear you and you, and you realize that not only did I impact you, but now by being around you, you're impacting me and, and those levels of fulfillment go up. And I feel like during the pandemic, as you say, with COVID, the thing that I've really struggled with is the fact that people that don't have our best interests in mind, regardless of what the media wants to tell us or regardless of what the two opposing tribes of, you know, ultra liberal, ultra conservative want to say on TV, because typically most humans are somewhere in the middle. You just don't hear their voice. Regardless of what they're telling us, you know, they don't care about the fact that we have, you know, a young man that is a successful implementer of positivity in the world that disappears from existence because it doesn't it doesn't register on what their bigger agenda is. And so what I fear is happening is a lot of people are starting to feel like disenfranchised with life. And when you can't have a goal to work for, when you can't have the stress be replaced with, you know, adulation or positive reinforcement or just a simple, hey, man, you did a good job with this project. It starts to make humans feel as if their existence is without worth. Now, you can throw in any magnitude of externals on top of that, you, you know, you, drugs and alcohol and, you know, lifestyle choices that are helping people, you know, and I say help loosely, but in their mind, they think they're, okay, I'll just have some alcohol and it'll help me through this day right? Yeah. Coping mechanisms, not realizing that all that's doing is interfering with all the neurochemicals that are going to keep them from feeling that death is more valuable than life. And so, and that has, as crazy as it is, I think it all comes back to a lot of this long-term steady state goal setting, having, having something that you're moving towards, right? Well, um, I think you and I are similar in, in the sense of like, we probably get most of our fulfillment from big things, moving toward big things. Like I don't get fulfillment from Instagram, or at least in the past, you know? And, yeah. and when you can't get fulfillment from moving toward big picture goals, or maybe you just, for whatever reason, haven't had any success in the last nine months because something's changed in your life, now you start looking for it in these shallow places and it's empty, right? It's right. the instant gratification. It's the emptiness of, of Instagram and, and, you know, the instant dopamine hit. And then, you know, maybe that was that was where he felt. He felt maybe empty and he's like, man, I just, there's nothing here now. And because he couldn't see that bigger thing that he was always working yeah. toward. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, it's, I, I that's my big fear is when people start to feel is if life has no value, right? Like we're not here by accident. I don't know why we're here. You know, like I, that's a, the metaphysical question I'm always struggling with, but it's not an accident. Mm -hmm. And for sure it's, it keeps repeating, right? Like when you read the Stoic philosophers and their words, you know, 15 words long are describing modern society. We've been through this before for sure, just different standards, you know, but it, it's, it's really something that I, I think has to be addressed. And I don't know what the long-term solution is, but telling people that they have to they have to be a certain way and doing it in a way in which it creates division is going to only prolong it. 
You know, like we're dealing with some weird stuff out here in California in terms of legislative stuff, like with the pandemic, you know, obviously it's become a running meme or a joke, you know, can't have Thanksgiving, can't have Christmas. You know, if you do, it's got to be massively limited. There was, you know, a governor, I think from Ohio, just, or maybe a senator, doesn't matter, just tweeted that people aren't allowed to dance at weddings. You know, like very footloose stuff, right? Like, like in our younger generation, they made movies making fun of the things in which they're now trying to normalize. You know, and Kevin Bacon saved the world with rock and roll. And now we're in a situation where they don't want to do that at all. But it, it's really strange. And like when you look at Instagram, for example, you know, I decided to use Instagram a number of years ago as a medium for like an artistic expression. I didn't want to just post a shit. I didn't want to post Big Macs, right? Like I, I just, I was like, ah, man, you know what? I'm going to do micro blogs. That sounds like fun. And for a while, uh, a couple of few years, it was, it was well appreciated, right? Like it was people read it and they would respond and I would give like these really- of the greatest Instagram videos of all time, if you ask <laughs> Right? And so, and so what I ended up doing is I actually tracked it. And I ended up, and this, this sounds disturbing because it is, but it's a modern world. On Instagram microblogs over like a five-year period, they equal roughly 70,000 words of text. And I ended up pulling them all off and putting them into a Word document. It was like 100 and something pages or whatever, right? So it was interesting because everything I did on Instagram to get it to grow and to get a following was like this, like pulling teeth, you know, but it, but it was almost cathartic for me because I would be sitting in the Middle East and I could write something and just get it out. And if people liked it, they liked it. If they didn't, they didn't. When they did like it, it made me feel good because it felt like maybe something I wrote was actually having a benefit. Well, what's interesting is this year, after all these years and writing all this stuff and having all this feedback in September, I just, one day I got up and I just was like, I can't focus on this anymore. And I remember it was like September 21st. That was the last time I posted. I didn't touch my Instagram again until October-ish, right? And I didn't think about it, just did other stuff. What was weird is a, a creative part of my brain actually became more creative, not trying to write every day and do that. I, I had like a different type of creativity open up. And you know what the irony is, is, you know, 12,000 organic followers that were following this really like obscure writing and photos that correlated to a message, all that stuff that I created. Do you think I got one message in a month asking me why I don't use Instagram anymore? Not one. Right. People that follow literally like every single photo I've ever posted. Nothing. Right. Post again a month later. There they are. Boop, right. And that's when I realized I'm like, OK, how do I actually interpret what in, interpret interpret what this is? If I put undue value on it, the only person that hurts is me, because clearly I take my product off the market. No one gave a shit. Right. And the big scheme of things. There's probably some people who are like, oh, that's a bummer. I haven't seen him in a while. There's also but the reality that we don't know because it's all curated and, and controlled anyways. Right. Like exactly. You know, I, yeah, I post the wrong story. I put the wrong words in a created story or God forbid, I post a, a video shooting a handgun. That shit ain't getting seen by anybody. Right. <laughs> right. Like it just it's just is what it is. But with that being said, it's like it made me kind of step back and be like, oh, OK, I get it. 
this a there's too much digital fire hose happening to people so if i pull my my data bite off of the instagram they're still getting blasted with 10,000 instagram posts a day right. right so they may not even notice for one secondly maybe it's not as important as people realize to put up that post every day are you doing it because you're trying to inspire others or are you doing it because you're trying to fulfill self and you kind of have to step back and be like, okay, if I'm only posting for self, if something happens to this medium, I'm in deep trouble because I will no longer have that thing to fulfill me. If I'm doing it to help others, clearly you don't have to do it every day. And maybe you should start moving more towards a, a methodology of quality over quantity again. And that's kind of the mindset I've taken now. It's like, I will only write when I feel like I have something worth writing about. And I'll put up a photo with it and I'll try to make it something that attracts people because I want them to interact with the moment, right? Because there's a lot to the visual that comes with the actual reading of a thing. You know, it's why magazines have great pictures or they used to before they canceled them all. You know, if not, everything would be textbooks, right? But, you know, so I, I like that because it's an artistic expression too. It's a thing I get to do. But yeah, it definitely made me kind of step back even after all these years and be like, okay, is social media for me or them? Because if it's for me, I better start reevaluating this because I don't make nearly enough money from putting this much energy into something, right? It's like, if you're going to put that energy into something, write a book. Yeah, a big thing for me is this podcast, man, to be honest, is, is this is by far my best way of connecting with my best customers and fans and, and followers right. and you know, they can actually, rather than getting the, the 60 second curated, you know, they get to see 10% of what the posts I make. They get to, we get to actually have a dialogue. They get to ask questions. They get to hear you and I interact. It's, I think it's a much better medium. And I think it gets a much higher, higher quality, I guess, uh, relationship mm -hmm. and demographic. So it's been fun, man. And I plan on continuing to do it and keep going deeper and deeper because, and this is something I know you started for a little bit. What happened with that? I did. So when I first was... You know, honestly, it was just the complexity of my life. So I had a down period when I created Ecobolic and I ended up actually getting really lucky, like with like 13 guests right off the bat that could all, and I mean, probably wasn't the best way to do it. I did 13 hours or 13 guests in seven days, right? So I, I just, I was like, bam, I, you know, cause I was traveling so much. I was like, I'll just get it done. And then I was still working in the Middle East. And I ended up losing one of my coaches over there, you know, life. She moved back to South Africa. And I was like, oh, man. So I was like just grinding. I was, you know, I think that year I spent like eight months out of 12 in the Middle East or traveling by plane with the royal family to who knows where. Right. And I just realized I had I had the inability to schedule people to interview because I was like, oh, this sucks. I'm like, I, I'm nine hours ahead, seven hours ahead, four hours behind. Like it was just constant. So I'm like, okay, I'll just put it on the back burner until everything chills out. Back burners are exactly that, back burners, right? So, so it's still up and the, the old episodes are there. And, and even I've gone back and listened to a couple of the guests I had because I was like, man, that, that was good. I, it's like, I need to reinvest into that energy. But it was, it's exactly that, like podcasts, 
to me, a good podcast has the same effect on my motivation or my interest is muscle media did when I was 16, right? Like I would pick up that new magazine, all the photos and, and the articles and the information. And I would just like crawl through it. And I just, everything was interesting. I, I knew the names, I knew the characters, I knew the backstories. It was, it was like comic books to the, to the physical side of my nature. A good podcast is like that. It's like, I get the same, like it, when, when it's going well and I'm looking at it, it, it's even like the beauty of say Rogan does it probably the best where he'll do the clips it's like I can go back and revisit clips on that one subject. It's kind of like going to like page 58, a muscle man, right? And just being like, oh yeah, that was a good article. That was cool. That was motivating. That made me think about something, right? And so I think podcasts for me are the same way. And I think too, partially as an audio learner, it's, uh, you know, it's like a past life rendition, right? Like I was a storyteller from the day I was born because I was born into a family of Canadian storytellers, right? So sitting around a fire and retaining three hours of a story so I can retell it at the next fire pit has always been quite natural, right? You know, a lot of people are always interested in my public speaking and they're like, how do you prepare for it? And I'm like, I, it's just there, sure. right? Yeah. yeah. It's like, get, you know, if, if I have to do a technical presentation, like back in the Poliquin days, I'll, I'll like review the technical aspects of it. But the presentation is just a story. You know, it's just, it's, it's tying concept to concept to concept in a way in which you can get through it. And hopefully it, it sticks to the people that are listening. But yeah, like public speaking, it's just storytelling. You know, it's, it's just, it's campfires, you know, and, and I think that's what, you know, people like totally going down different roads right now. But like when you look at Tony Robbins, you know, at the end of the day, he helps people. Sure. But he's a hell of a storyteller. Right. You know, people are willing to pay $3,000 to hear information, a lot of which they already knew. But man, the story makes it appreciated. You know, and it's like if if you can get people to understand that, especially from the coaching standpoint, coaching standpoint, human performance standpoint, it doesn't matter. Psychological optimization, learn how to tell the story, tell the story in which it resonates strongly enough with them that they want it to be their story. You know, it's so that, that transitions into nicely into what I wanted to kind of jump into a little bit here with you is, you know, you've had some incredibly high profile clients. You've worked with pro athletes all over the world, Olympic athletes and royal family. A lot of the demographic of people listening are coaches and mm -hmm. creating two things. I'm curious how you approach is motivation and buy-in. So when you're, when you're obviously when some, if someone's paying you, they're probably bought into what you say and do anyways. But at the same time, like I'm sure you're giving them direction that may not be always linear with what they believe was, or you know, their set of expectations. Yeah. So I'm curious how you, how you kind of approach buy-in and motivation. Well, it's funny that is, that's actually a good segue because I've always used the goal setting and storytelling to create buy-in with athletes. The one thing that I learned coaching and having, so you can coach, and you can also be a good coach. And then you can be a good coach that's a successful coach. 
And it's kind of a dickhead thing to say, but there's a lot of good coaches that don't produce winners, right? But they're good. They're good people. They're doing hard work and, the, and they got the best intentions. You know, they, they love their athletes. They love what they're doing. But then you meet coaches that are the same and win. And you're like, okay, so why is this coach always winning? And this other coach, hell of a nice guy, just doesn't produce champions. And so it's going to be self-serving dickhead com- comment, but I was lucky enough to be a coach that could produce champions, right? <laughs> so, but there's no other way to say it, right? And so when I look back on it, it, it was learning how to tie the goals together. So Judd Logan was probably the one that taught me that the most. Bud Rasmussen probably previous because I, I was able to be successful under Bud. But Judd Logan out of Ohio, the guys coached more champions than probably any coach in American track and field history to the point where I don't even think they track them anymore. Like hundreds of All-Americans, dozens and dozens of national champions, Olympians, right? He himself went to four. So when I look at that, the probably the biggest thing I learned in terms of being able to apply hard tasks in a way in which someone appreciates the effort put in, but also gets the winning on the front side is two parts. So on the front side, training for winning, right? Because that's kind of what it all comes down to. You're training for winning. That part of it is very long, right? And it can get like, you know, like grinding it out every day and having Groundhog Day sessions it's not always fun until it's over. And then you look back and you're like, man, training with the guys was a lot more fun than the competition on the day, right? Like it's kind of weird how that happens. And so what I learned from Judd, and I I think I had a bit of a natural aptitude for beforehand was I knew that I would come to practice as a coach either. And I was a skills coach as well. So I didn't just coach human performance. I also actually had to teach people how to play a sport at different times in my life. So I had as much success as a skills coach as I, as I did as a human performance coach. Like a lot of my national champions were actually people that I, I taught the skill to, and then they developed it and produced the performance. So there's a, there a couple different psychologies there. The thing you have to have that underlining, consistent, linear plan, right? That is going to be 12 months long. You know, as a coach, that never deviate. Yeah, because if you deviate from that, you won't get to the end of the 12 months. You'll be constantly starting over, right? So no matter how shitty it is for them or how bad the day is or how much struggle you're going through with that athlete, you can't give up on that. You have to have a plan and you have to have a plan that you as a coach believe in because either A, you know it's going to work because it's worked before. I mean, that's experience, right? That usually comes with some years in the game. So you know that no matter how much an athlete's being a dickhead or how much an athlete is trying to like be a stubborn horse about something, you're like, okay, I produced three national champions already with this system. If this person isn't applying the system and having success, it's not the system. It's how they're interpreting the system and how I'm presenting the information, right? So that's a big part of it because you know the system works. So you got to start to manipulate how you communicate, right? It comes down to conversations. It comes down to storytelling. It comes down to being a hard ass when you have to be a hard ass. You know, I had no problem as a NCAA coach tearing the ass off my athletes. I had no problem, but it would only happen in certain circumstances. I never yelled. I was never a yelling coach. When I did, it was kind of like a shock to the system. 
And the reason I, it was always the same trigger for me that made me just tear the paint off an athlete. It was negative self-talk. If I caught my athletes negative self-talking and I could see it like escalating and then start to spread to the team, oh, fucking explosive, right? Like just embarrassingly bad. And the way I, and afterwards, I'd kind of take them all in and have a conversation with them about it and be like, so here's why I do that, right? And, and I can clearly remember at Adam State yelling so aggressively at a group of 20-year-old men and women that one started to cry, another one, you know, these are like super alpha athletes. The whole, you know, their field house had 60 people in it. It was, you could hear a pin drop. And then afterwards I bring them all together and I'm like, listen, so you understand that it's not personal. The reason that I had to escalate the aggression so quickly and so high is because there was a manifestation of negative energy that was growing so rapidly inside of you that I had to, this sounds crazy, I had to burst that negative bubble so that it didn't become a slow festering mindset. Break the pattern. Had to break the pattern. Yeah. So it's like I've always used extreme coaching methods only to break slow festering negative programming, right? And then they they kind of sit back. They realize it's not personal. You kind of talk them through it. You coach them. You help them understand what it was. Then you start building them back up again with a new foundation of positive reinforcement. Everyone thinks that being a hard-ass negative coach at times is going to break an athlete. No, not at all. What breaks an athlete is being a piece of shit to them every single day for the rest of their career. That'll break them, and they'll never want to play the sport again. I've had that coach. I know exactly what that's like. But when they realize that you're on their side and that the reason you have moments where you call them clearly and call them out and they realize it's in their their own best self-interest, they'll run through a wall for you because you're all running in the same direction. And they start to realize through this process that not every day can be a championship day. Not every day is going to be a winning day. And then once you establish that mindset, then it's about creating a narrative. For me, it was always about a story, a narrative. And I started in the off season. So track and field is a good example of this, and it can carry into all sports. Track and field, you show up September 1st, and you typically compete the end of May for the collegiate season. So you have this perfect linear system. You start doing meets in January, national championship in March, national championship at the end of May. So what I used to do as a coach is so much of it's technical brain stuff, right? It's like learning how to play a guitar. You just have to repetition after repetition. But the story starts back in September. The story, it's almost like the hero's journey. You know, it's almost like George Campbell, like or Joseph Campbell. It was that mindset for me from the very beginning. I was going to George Lucas and Joseph Campbell always get mixed for me because they were so tied. Right. But it, it's like the, the hero's journey. It's like, I start creating the idea that they're going to overcome all of these obstacles. And I start talking about it all the time. Now, when I say all the time, it's when they're with you for that three hours a day. Right. And I start talking about the process. I start creating you know, villains, not bad guys, but villains, they, they have to have their Medusas. They have to have their dragons they're going to slay. So Adam State, that, that's super simple. You know, we got a couple 
conference universities that we're going to go up against. We start to figure out who their their <clears throat> you know nemesis will be. When I was at the University of Wyoming, it's Colorado State. I knew all the names of the Colorado State athletes I had to beat before I could get to nationals or win a conference title. And you start creating the hero's journey and you start you start building this mindset that they're going to overcome this dragon. They're going to face this obstacle. They're going to go through this fire. And you can see it coming. You know when these fires are going to occur. And what is a beauty is when you start to have failures in training. People say, wow, failures in training. How's that a beautiful thing? Because those start to teach the athlete, if you know how to harness that information, it starts to teach the mental fortitude they're going to need to get to that national title at the end of the day. So if we have a setback on the day in practice, right? Like they just shit the bed, right? It happens to all of us and things go sideways at practice. They don't have a good day that, you know, the girlfriend or their boyfriend or their studies or whatever is in the way. And it creates that undulation that causes them to show up and lose a day, right? That's, that's what we always used to talk about is, is you can lose a day, but win the outcome right? Like you can lose days to practice. Things don't always go well. You can get sick. You can have setbacks. It happens constantly, but it's the hero's journey. How does that athlete and how do you start to manipulate the narrative for them to help them understand that, oh shit, I needed that setback. I needed this shit day right now to give me the motivation to get back in line. I didn't realize that I was losing motivation. I didn't realize that I was starting to mail in until you have that hiccup when the matrix gives you the red dress, right? And if you're a good enough coach and you can narratively speak through it, you can see that happen. And you might have to get on their ass a little bit and be like, hey, what's up? And like just boom, boom, get through that initial psychological barricade, right? Like sometimes getting on an athlete's ass is nothing more than quick locking a vaulted door right? So athletes don't want to always let you in because they're humans. And if they're dealing with some shit, they got their doors up, they got their boundaries up. They don't want you to come in and have that moment of uh, vulnerability, right? Because athletes, oh, I don't, I don't have bad days stuff, right? Especially if they're alpha driven male females. And there's people that like think that coaching different sexes is different. Not really. You know, like I've coached Olympic level females they are like teeth nine, like driven hard asses. You put them and train them the same time as your men, you will not have any difference in the psychology that's happening there. What happens psychologically male to female is you will see their, how they prep for a national championship can be a little bit different. Men have a tend to isolate. Women have a tendency to conjugate in team sports and they will go in as a group and fucking devour the competition where sometimes guys like to go in as the lone soldier and like come out, you know, victorious. So learning that is important. Don't don't isolate your female athletes. A lot of coaches do that. And it's a fucking huge mistake because they, they want to be the only man in their life. Right. The bullshit. So when I start to look at developing athletes in that narrative, you have to get through that boundary sometimes really quickly because you don't have time. So sometimes you'll use like that harsh interaction with that athlete in that moment because you're basically 
fast pick locking a vaulted door and you get right to their vulnerability right away. But when you get to the vulnerability of the athlete that's causing the dysfunction, you can't be in a piece of shit to that vulnerability because they've let you in, even though you came in aggressively, if you're in and then you're harsh to them, that boundary just gets deeper and deeper and deeper, right? And they won't let you in. So once you get in, then you have to become the, the master of empathy. You have to be like, okay, so you've let me in. You just gave me the, the first green light, which is, yeah, coach, man, you know, my girlfriend. The moment they say that, and it has nothing to do with the actual nuts and bolts of say a shot put or a barbell, you gotta, you gotta, at that moment as a coach, you're being given information that will forever change the relationship you have with that athlete. And that's where I used to be really good. And this is where I learned from Judd. That's where you kind of just take your energy down a minute and you're just like, what's up? They will tell you. And then when they tell you, you'll either have advice, sage advice for them, or you won't. But at least then you can be like, okay, I now have a way of determining what that what is happening when this happens in practice it's probably from this type of trigger and when i had athletes that i started to understand were emotionally very fragile to the outside world either relationships really affected them or friendships or not being cool enough i would take that information and start to steer the narrative during that 3 hour window if it was somebody that felt like they were always on the outside of their peer group well, they became the center of my peer group, for example. They became, hey, as soon as they came through the door, you're here, you're mine, we're a tribe. The entire world can fuck themselves, right? And that they'd be like, oh, yeah, this is where I belong. This is my place. Boom, you're probably going to have a national champion out of that kid, right? Because now that's his or her home. If I had an athlete that was extremely emotional due to the rise and fall of academics, especially with college kids, right? So if academics weren't going well and they knew that the pressure of that was going to dramatically affect their life outside of training, I would have to start to create the narrative. And especially with them, and it sounds terrible, but it's the reality, is I would de-emphasize the importance of academics during a track and field practice, right? It's like, you're there to get an education. I get it. But for my three hours, I don't give a shit. I don't give a shit if you can't do two plus two, if you can do gold medal. You know, if two, if two plus two equals gold medal, then that's what I would focus on. It's right? also and, from our perspective of, of building confidence in them, right? If you, if yeah. They can, they can build that positive mindset and momentum in one thing. They can take that with them to something else. 100%. And, and it carries on. Like, And, and you're going to have tough goes as a coach. You know, I had young 18-year-old athletes become fathers while they were freshmen in college. That, that's a tough go. That's a, that's a, it's a very difficult thing to add to a freshman in college's plate, right? Yeah. Especially when she's still in high school. And those are realities that you deal with as a coach, especially nowadays. Things happen. But what you do is you have to just keep reemphasizing the fact that the space that you're creating is a space of positive, safe growth, right? And you have to keep manipulating the narrative of the hero's journey towards a successful outcome. And if you can help them steer that ship, right? Because at that point, you're kind of the captain and they're kind of the helmsman, right? Like they're going to operate which way that wheel goes, but you are really kind of helping them dictate the obstacles in the ocean. And when you look at it from that perspective, 
you're not going to be successful 100% of the time, right? There's some kids just fucking blow out. It, like there, there's so much going on with them that, or it doesn't even have to be kid. It could be your client at 24 hour fitness. That's 35 years old. It, it's irrelevant. The age, there's so much going on with them behind the scenes that there is no way that you can masterfully steer or guide or navigate that, that decision, right? They're, they may have all the best intentions in the world, but they're just, it is what it is, right? But if you can get through those layers and you don't take advantage of the vulnerability that they allow you and you can help navigate and create that hero's journey for them, I have found that those athletes, A, the, somehow, some way, they'll be a part of your life for the rest of your life. It, it's kind of a weird phenomenon. And then on top of it, there seems to be a transference of that type of experience that they have the ability then to share with other people that come after them. They won't all become coaches, but for some reason, when they've had that experience, they, even if they're not, you know, consciously trying to do it like a coach, they have a tendency to be very empowering to the people that they affect behind them. You know, it does seem to be a transcendent thing. And, and I do think it is, you know, ancestral. I, I think the teachings of one skill to another in a way in which that person becomes self-sufficient, regardless of the skill, intellectual or physical, does transfer through a millennia. You know, that's why we're here today. We are the, we are the result of the transfer of usable skills, you know, as a culture. Yeah, one question that I think is relevant here is, in your experience, have you run into more people who are successful in athletics, call them champions, who tended to have the more negative default thinking or the more uh, positive default thinking? I always wanted to believe that champions were a byproduct of infallible positive thought. Right. And on the service, you know, they may be some charismatic sons of bitches, right? They're the center of attention. Everyone wants to be around them. They can have a story, but you get those guys alone. <laughs> right. And, and I was probably similar. You yep. get them alone, you get them into practice, you start to hear what they're, they actually think, how many times they start motherfucking their competition about how many times they're having like, you know, it's like, you know, I think it was Apocalypse Now. There's a scene where it's like a guy kind of zoned out. They've made a meme out of it. And it's just like blank eyes and like the Viet the Vietnam jungle exploding behind him. And it's just chaos and death, right? And you're just like, Jesus, that's a horrific thought. And then you realize that a lot of these super successful athletes that are positive in every other part of their life, they are watching jungles burn every time they pick up their sport. And and I was the same. Like I was, I was a harsh harsh psychological guy athletically like when when I was going to train or when I was going to play it, it was to burn the world down so I could stand on the ashes right like and it's a gross thought but it's what motivated me to try to be the best I, I you know for me I felt like there were so many things and the athletes I've had the most success with were constantly just torching like torching the planet they were just like every day they trained they were f like fierce ferociously fierce to be around and everyone thinks that's positive right because it's like man that guy's a real go-getter that guy he never has a bad day yeah be 
because he's fucking possessed, right? Like he's a man possessed. It's a darkness that's coming out in that moment. Now, the positive may be that's how they exercise that energy, right? That that fighter uh, warrior mentality, they get to exercise it in the beauty of sport or the beauty of accomplishment. So they are totally carrying sheepdogs the rest of their day and the rest of their life. But in that moment, I would never try to deter it. Like if I had this athlete, this guy was so good at what he did. And he was a national champion and he had to come back through. He was from wheelchair to national champion was 13 months, right? Like this guy had a real bad case of injury luck playing football, almost lost his lower leg from a really strange injury and was able to come back from it to be a national champion in a different sport. That guy was super pleasant, super every day. And then, you know, highly intelligent. And then one day after about six months of working with him, we were sitting there and I realized that the the music he listened to, which was kind of the same music I listened to at the time, was all tool, like tool 24-7, tool, tool, tool. And I'm like, huh, that's interesting. I never saw him as a tool guy, right? Like I was a tool guy, but I was self-admittedly a bit of an angry athlete, right? Like I was highly, highly volatile in my training personality. But this, he didn't come across that way. And then when I figured out that trigger and I was like helping develop the narrative of success, I just decided to experiment with him one day because he was always so upbeat, right? And he was sitting there and we were getting ready for a competition, right? And I'm just like, I'm like, are you ready? He's like, oh yeah, I'm you know, super ready, coach. I, I can't, can't wait. I'm so excited. I'm like, huh. I'm like, and he'd never had this experience with me before. And I'm just like, really excited? You excited that that guy wants to fucking crush you right now? Like he doesn't care about you at all. And I just, this weird, like, like it's almost like he put a mask on and he just went blank. And he's like, I'm going to fucking kill that guy. And I was like, oh, so you are one of us. Okay. I get it now. You just internalize everything because you're so freaking intelligent right? That you just don't wear any of your emotion on your sleeve. Whereas a guy like me, I was like, rah, you know, crazy, you know, swinging an ax every time I competed because I like the theatrics of being allowed to be set free in that moment. And when I realized that I was like, oh, okay, I get it. Everything for you is inside. So then I had to be careful never to overload him or allow him negative self-talk. Because guys that are that dark and intense and internal and rage-filled for success, and it's like the rage of success, right? You, you have to be really careful that you don't negatively ever self-talk them because it goes right inside them and they harbor it for the rest of their life. So I would never let them self-negative talk, especially once you learn that because they're already so hard on themselves anyway. And I would never negative self-talk. I would logically explain why and why we didn't do things a certain way. Very matter of fact, take the emotion out of it because I realized they were like me. They just didn't show it. And I was one of those guys that you gave me emotional negative talk as a coach coming up. Holy fuck. You know, 25 years later, I'm still drawn on that shit. If I have to do a workout, right? Like I was just like, Oh yeah, motherfucker. Right. And it's like, Oh, that was 25 years ago. Yeah, I, I was the same. I would, if someone negative talked to me, I would, I would attack them. Like, Yes. It never, it never helped me. I just wanted to smash your head against the wall. Always. It, yeah. it was, I would harbor that shit 
forever. Right? <laughs> like I was just like, oh, you know, to the point where I'd be like, I, I don't know if I'll ever like that person again. Like, I, <laughs> I still hold, I still hold grudges, man. <laughs> yeah. And so I was yeah. the worst for that. Yeah. It was like whatever that defense mechanism humans have, right? Like we have a tendency to hang on to hurt because hurt keeps us alive, right? Thing, you know, you scratch yourself on a branch. Oh, I won't do that twice. Now I know to duck under a branch, right? Like it, it's that stuff is genetic. Well, so is emotional scarring, right? So people don't think about that enough where if you're using hurtful shit to motivate people, not realizing that that is the same like kind of defense mechanism that people learn to stay alive physically, you learn to stay alive emotionally as well, right? So if you over, if your coaching style is ice cold ballistic bullshit all the time, you're going to have athletes that may be successful but if you have them for a long time, they will be robots that are emotionally void of any other thing in their life, right? right? And that's, you see that a lot, you know, if you've met former Eastern Bloc athletes that you meet them later in life, they're just like, whoop, and you're like, oh, you were coached hard your yeah. whole life, right? You weren't coached to be the hero of your story. You were coached to win or die. Right. And this, they can both be gold medalists, but it's a very different way to get there. Whereas Judd's athletes, 25 years later, they're asking them like my brother, right? 25, you know, 20 years after Judd coached him, Judd's one of his best men in his wedding, right? That completely different psychology. My coach from Wyoming, nobody talks to, nobody wants to interact with because he just broke everybody off, right? Both were successful, completely different methodology. Yeah, I'm curious yeah. if anyone's ever created kind of like an avatar list of like how like psychological profiling. So for me, my discontent was always for myself. It was always mm -hmm. inadequacy. So I was never competitive against you. I never really wanted to crush your soul unless you said something bad about me. Right. Uh, I just wanted to be better than I was yesterday. And even if I did, uh, I set a, a PR times 10 today, I still wasn't good enough. It was like, right. keep going, keep going, keep going. And, th and that's a different profile altogether than the ones that you've mentioned. It is. And it's, you know, like when you take an athlete that their soul driven process is self self betterment, right? Like when they're, you give, and they're rare, like they do exist, but they're not common. Like it's rare to come across the athlete that is like, you know, like literally like shaking hands and happy go lucky. And it's like, I really wish you the best today. Because if I beat you today, that means I was even better than myself. Like that is such thin air thinking. Well, I didn't that, I wasn't like that, but I was just like, it's just all about me. And, and yeah. even if I did my best, the, the response was always, fuck, I could have done better. Yeah, I wish I had better memories of my championships. I, I, I don't. I wish I had the ability when I was an athlete to stop and just walk on a hike instead of thinking about getting well, that would have been a coach right the coach should have said hey after you finish this win you need to celebrate that that's the coaching that i would have needed Pretty i did celebrate. yeah i i needed the breathe coach i needed the celebrate coach and i i had one when i first started my career and i had one when i first ended my career so bud rasmussen when i first started in the u.s and judd logan when i first ended my career both were like that but i had a big chunk in the middle that was really bad. I had a really bad coach that taught me a lot of very terrible habits. And it's funny because now uh, when I look back, 
when I think of my most enjoyable periods of my athletic career were the very beginning under Bud Rasmussen, because we were winning and it was just freedom. Like I'd never felt so free in my life. Like I was just, I, I would train really hard and good things would happen. And, and he wasn't worried about whether or not I had a beer on a Saturday because he knew, you know, a, I wasn't a big beer guy anyway, but it didn't matter because we trained hard and we won and we were doing things right. It was very balanced. The middle period was fucking shitsville, had a terrible coach, terrible experience, terrible everything. Like Jesus Christ, I, I should sue the university for stealing years off my life, right? And injuries. And then when I came out of that and went with Judd, I had to relearn what it was like to be the previous athlete with Bud. And it was conversations and hard work and stories, you know, so many stories about the process. It was always stories about the process. And it was like, you know, if you're having a really down day, you would have conversations about everybody's down day and how they overcame it. And that was always fascinating to me. It's like when things weren't going well, sometimes you just have to have a conversation about other people who didn't have things go well, but were still successful. And you didn't do it with a conscious mindset. You're like, hey, you know, I know everyone's having a down day. Let's have down day conversation examples, right? It wasn't, you know, it wasn't something like that. It was just like, it was like an understanding. It was like, fuck, man, today's a struggle. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And then you would just like 10 minutes later, you're just talking about like the struggle of what it is you're trying to achieve. And I, and I think that's another part of it now that I kind of am reminiscing about this that is often overlooked is the camaraderie that comes from training and communicating and the success that comes from being able to openly speak to other people in your world about how hard the thing you're doing actually is. And you're not sitting around water cooling a bullshit, woe is me. It's like, sometimes you just have to sit back and be like, God damn, I'm trying to do a hard fucking thing. And it's kind of hard, right? Like that, that's reality. And, and what tends to happen is people, if you're always around people that aren't doing the hard thing, aren't trying to be the tip of a spear in some endeavor. When it looks like you're just pushing, pushing, pushing and successful even to them, sometimes they don't want to hear you talk about how hard the choices you're making are. And it's really kind of a fucked up thing, right? Like you take kind of, if you're surrounded by some average achievers or mildly unsuccessful people and you start talking about how goddamn hard it is to try to get to the top of something, they do not want to hear it. I don't get it. And it sucks because sometimes you have to. You have to have the emotional unletting of how difficult your situation is. It doesn't matter if you're successful. And, and I think it takes us back to what's happening in our field a little bit with suicides. These people don't have anyone to talk to at that level of hard, right? Like I mean, soldiers, military, I've had this conversation and I know it applies to our yeah. field. Nobody they come relate. home, they can't relate. And it's like, you're the very best at something, but for some reason you're really struggling. Why? Because you're struggling up here and everyone else is struggling down here. Right. Doesn't mean you don't struggle at the top. It just means that what you're struggling with is different. and. And I found when I had a good group of training going on, 
that was a big part of it. When I could sit down with peers at my level, and it sounds like a dickhead thing to say, but listen, not everybody in karate class is a black belt, right? That's just reality. And the faster you learn that, the better. So when I was a white belt, I had white belt gripes and white belt conversations. But when I became a black belt, the, the air gets thin, right? The air gets thin. There's not a lot of people sitting around in your situation. And so what ends up happening is you have a tendency to internalize way too much of the struggle of the black belt. But I'll tell you what, you get a bunch of black belts together that are peers, that understand, that's hugely valuable because now they can complain. Like all our Olympians and uh, world team members under Judd, we all had conversations that were different when we were by ourselves. Like A.G. Kruger, who was my roommate, was a three-time Olympian, and I was a two-time national team member. Our gripes were different. When we got together and had a heart-to-heart, it was the conversation was necessary because we had things we did not understand or know how to deal with, even though we were the best of our, our peer group. You know, we were, everything was going well, guys. No, bullshit, right? Because how do you, how do you crest 1% when you got 99 figured out? It's fucking a tall order. And when it doesn't go well and there's no one to talk to about it, it's very, very difficult. It's the summit of the mountain, right? I mean, using your your mountain climbing analogy, there's always that summit that you don't see and you're like, oh boy, it's going to, I'm at my time, most tired. Fatigued. I got to summon all my mental strength. I have no idea if yep. I'm going to make it. The consequences are big, but I'm going to man up and. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. And I and I think there's a lot of value in that. I think, I think it's okay to to have. I, you have to find people that understand what it is that you're struggling with for sure. It still comes back. You have to have a tribe. You have to have a group of peers that you can use to help you be successful. It's essential. Dude, incredible conversation. I'm so grateful for your time. What did you have in your coffee this morning? So my coffee is super straightforward now. I use, so I like to use a product called Bubs, but I use their protein. So I use Bubs Collagen Protein. I take about 18 grams of protein. I use heavy cream and coffee, and that is my first four hours of every day. I, you know, having been a guy that has been really big and strong and now needs to be a lot smaller and more age appropriate. <laughs> I do what I refer to as semi-fasted mornings and it is why, pro- why heavy call why heavy cream instead of MCTV? Super simple. I like the MCTs. The MCTs do not like me. Oh wow. So I'm one of the guys that for Megan, no problem. She can crush MCTs. Easy peasy. For me, I have to be really you just have to build up the tolerance, right? Yep, it is. And, and it takes me forever. So if I know I got stuff to do, it's heavy cream and protein. If I don't got stuff to do, which hasn't been recent, <laughs> I got to build up my tolerance because I got them both on the counter. And I love uh, Bob's MCT. And I'm asking that they're actually the sponsor of the show, which is perfect. Are they so really? They oh, are. Sean's so, a great guy. Oh, Sean's yeah. amazing, man. And then they're doing such awesome things. You know, obviously they did for uh, Veterans Day. They gave all their profits that day to charity and they continues to give 10% of their, their profits to charity, which I love. So I think our code for Bubs is right. Ben. That's so that's perfect. a perfect segue. Yeah, so Bubs Natural is something I use literally every day. Just like you, I don't know if I use as much as 18 grams of collagen. So I do the Bubs MCT, the real the real mushrooms, uh, lion's mane, and some collagen. And I'll add some alpha GPC in there as well because the liquid alpha GPC yeah. is 
Oh man, that's just the, the, the kickstart for the brain every morning. That tastes amazing. I think it's better than cream, at least my brain. Yeah. You know, and I'll tell you what, like I, I was kind of a guy that probably just because I was, that's tired of the rhetoric coming out of the Poliquin days that everybody was like, always oh, so extreme about stuff. Right. So I was like, you know what? I ain't doing shit. You know, I'm not, out. I'm not listening to any of it. And I'll tell you what, man, I met Sean out at Summer Strong a couple of years ago and didn't think anything of it. And he didn't ask anything of me. Didn't nothing. He's just like, Hey, try this out. I was like, yeah, whatever. You know? Now we're a couple years in, right? Of me like just kind of using the product, and you know, and and he asked me, yeah, what do you think? Do you want some more? Like it, it never puts pressure on me about the product, so it's funny because I didn't know you were actually a bub sponsored uh, podcast. Yeah. yeah, man, I think it's the best game in town for what I was looking for, and to be honest, it's what they believe in. Yep. The fact that they are willing to start a company with the underlining m- mentality to give back. Like fuck, sign me up, right? So yeah. you got a you got a product that's really good, and you're willing to give back. And you know, I'll be honest, it, it wasn't even Sean or Bubs or anything like that 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 kind of got me to kind of shake my head a little bit. It was Laird Hamilton, right? I think it was a couple years ago. I was watching something, and I'm like, this fucking guy, he's in his fifties, he's crushing life. He just everything that you know that you kind of want to aspire to as you get older he's still doing then i was like i decided just to investigate him i've always been a fan but i was like yeah let's see what he's up to and you know what morning simple nutrient dense like coffee some stuff for his stomach some stuff for his brain some collagen in there i was like you know what fuck it what's it going to hurt and so i started you know and it's made a huge difference like my price since I saw you last, I think I'm 30 pounds lighter. You know, I'm in the 250s. I'm always going to be a little bit bigger guy, but as I get towards 230s, joints feel better. You know, I've had a ton of surgeries. The collagen protein makes my stuff crack less, yep. right? So there's, I can give you a scientific bullshit answer about it, but here's the real answer. My stuff feels better, right? That's it. Yeah, same as me, man. That's awesome, dude. So final shout out, bubsnaturals.com. I believe our code has been actually get you 20% off, which is awesome. And how many companies do that? Yeah, Yeah. for um, supplement companies, the profit margin is typically so low. So the fact that they're giving us 20% discount and giving 10% to charity is is, uh, exceptional. And it's huge. uh, As you say, super grateful for Sean and the team over at Bubs for sponsoring Derek Woodski and sponsoring the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. Awesome. That's a wrap, ladies and gents. Thank you so much for tuning into the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. So you know where this podcast began. In 2013, we started talking about muscle. The podcast was called the Muscle Expert Podcast. It was exclusively around muscle, and a lot of people loved it. And I loved it. And then as I started to transition out of muscle building, I still love muscle building. It's still the foundation of everything I do because I think it's a daily battleground start to develop in character and virtue and develop who you are and become more mindful and become more present, right? But I wanna bring this to your attention. It's not about what you do, it's how you do it. It's the mindset you take with you. It's the focus you take with you. It's the presence that allows you to turn this endeavor that you're already partaking in into something that is vice-driven and developing vice and ultimately developing inadequacy within you or developing virtue and ultimately developing character and strength and power and developing the greatest version of yourself. The same thing you're doing 
regardless of what it is, can be contextually applied in either direction to get a different result long-term. So I hope each, each and every one of you can take this tiny bit of awareness into the gym with you or into any life event and realize that anything you do can be both sides of the coin. So if you choose to be a victim, if you choose to be angry, if you choose to take the I have to attitude or an angry attitude with you, you're embodying more and more of that. Whereas if you can take this attitude of gratitude and empowerment and development of character and virtue with you into the workouts and mindfulness and presence, you can literally use those workouts to anchor that deeper and deeper and deeper into your personality. And this is something that started my journey uh, away from only teaching muscle building, which I call tactics, to now teaching a strategy to become not only the most muscular version of yourself and the most healthy version of yourself, but also the most virtuous version of yourself, because this exists in everything you do. So notice your attitude, the attitude you take with you, the perception you have toward events is going to determine the outcome of those events and how they lead you down this path of either being super happy and super fulfilled from something or ultimately feeling really inadequate and very angered or adversarial towards something. And that will start to spiral and become the person you are. So if you find that yourself is living in stress or you're living in inadequacy or, or fear, or whatever it happens to be, start paying attention to the attitude you take with you into everything you do. As I said, sometimes we've got to sit down and anchor who we want to be in this moment. If you didn't listen to that intro of the podcast, that's how I started this podcast. As I wake up every day realizing who am I, right? who am I right now? Who do I want to be? Do I want to be the vicious person of myself, the vice-driven person version of myself? So it's all about external gratification and anger and, and, and uh, power, or maybe it's not power, it's um, uh, putting other people down. Or do I want to be the person who's living in the light and lifting people up? and being the best version of myself, and that's the only standard to which I hold myself, right? There's no need for external gratification. It all comes from within, and all this is built into your workouts. Guys, I truly appreciate your time, and I truly appreciate you being here, and I would love it if you could share this podcast with at least one person you know and love who uh, wants to live the greatest life in the body they love. Maybe they already exercise, and maybe they don't, but we're here to empower you with both the skills and tactics to train, and the strategy and the mindset approach to live your greatest life. Have an amazing day. I love you all. Uh, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and Spotify. Spotify is a new place where we're being hosted. And I love it on there. I love being on there. Have a great day, guys. Thank you for being Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.